Welcome to Spiritual Warfare. My name is Teresa. I will be reading from the book Imagine Heaven by John Burke, forward by Don Piper. Near-death experiences, God's promises, and the exhilarating future that awaits you. Are you guys tired of this subject yet? I still have quite a few pages to go here, so hopefully not. And if so, you'll just have to skip on. Kay and I will be... We pre-recorded through April, so she's getting ready to leave again, Guatemala, I think. So when she gets back, we will start recording again, and we'll be able to uh, hear what she had to say about her trips, too. That'll be exciting. Okie dokie, let's start here with spiritual adultery. Listen to the emotion of this passage that emanates from the heart of God, a a wounded lover who just found out all he hoped for has been dashed to pieces on the shoals of adultery. My faithless people, come home to me again, for I am merciful. I will not be angry with you forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. Admit that you rebelled against the Lord your God and committed adultery against him. By worshiping idols under every green tree. Confess that you refuse to listen to my voice. You have been unfaithful to me, you people of Israel. You have been like a faithless wife who leaves her husband. Can you hear the emotion in the heart of God? As God reveals to the Old Testament prophets, when we forsake our Creator to go our own way against his will, and when we love other things more than God, it breaks his heart. An idol is anything we put first before God. All the warnings of punishment and judgment for sin and rebellion in the Old Testament remind us that our actions have cause and effect consequences. When we turn from our Creator, we hurt God. And we hurt each other always, even if we don't see it yet. Lisa said, the being of light knew everything about me. It knew all I had ever thought, said, or done. And it showed me my whole life in a flash. All the cause and effect relations in my life, all that was good or negative, all of the effects of my life on earth had had on others. Some Christians will probably wonder, how could God possibly reveal himself to those who don't believe in him? But they forget God's heart longs for every person to come home from every nation, every language. They were all created by him and for him. And don't forget, there's no measure that he won't take to get them back. He took extreme measures to rescue evil Nineveh, he revealed himself in a blinding light to Saul who was headed to arrest and murder God's people. And the Old Testament prophets foretold the ultimate extreme measure God would take to get us back. He would enter our sufferings to restore us relationally. The moral law. Near-death experiencers commonly experience two things in the presence of this being of light, an overwhelming love and compassion, and a life review where this God of light emphasizes the impact 
of their action on others. Steve Miller studied non-Western, non-Christian near-death experiencers and said, in my non-Western sample, I saw no significant difference in life reviews compared to Western life reviews. Suresh from India recalls the relational nature of her near-death experience. I realized that God was love, light, and motion, and to be able to receive him in the heart, one had to cleanse it in mind by apologizing to all people I was associated with and with whom I had differences, arguments, or quarrels, or all those whom I might have knowingly or unknowingly caused pain. The kind of love that I experienced there cannot be expressed in words. People commonly say all religions basically teach the same thing. There's some truth to this. It's actually uncanny how similar the moral laws are across cultures. In ancient China, Babylon, Egypt, Greece, and Rome, across Anglo-Saxon, and American Indian culture through Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, and Muslim sacred writings all basically agree in this area. Former Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis gives evidence of the common moral law summarized below. Don't do harm to another human by what you do or say. That's the golden rule. Honor your mother and your father. Be kind toward brothers, sisters, children, and the elderly. Do not have sex with another person's spouse. Be honest in all your dealings. Don't steal. Do not lie. Care for those weaker or less fortunate. Dying to self is the path to life. In just about every culture and world religion since the beginning of recorded history, we see this common moral law. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts. So we've always known basic right and wrong in every culture for all time, but what does that teach us? How well have we kept the moral law? The history of humanity is a pretty peaceful, loving one, right? We don't fight, divide, divorce, kill, destroy, talk badly about one another. We don't harm one another, cheat one another, deceive one another, do we? Watch the news. No, the history of humanity indicates we don't honor parents. We fail to be kind to siblings or the elderly. We're sexually unfaithful, dishonest, untruthful, greedy, and few of us involve ourselves with those less fortunate because we get self-consumed with our own will and ways. Instead of seeking God's will and ways, we seek first that my will be done on earth and in heaven. And when God doesn't do as we expect, we get angry and we turn from him. So what do these common truths of the world's religions teach us? We're all royal screw-ups. The world's a mess. We have a real serious problem, humanly speaking. We all know the right things to do. We always have in every culture for all times, and yet the history of humanity is that we fall short no matter how hard we try. People have a problem. Christians, Jews, Buddhists, Muslims, atheists, you, me, and it's affecting all of us. We all desperately need God's help. The question is, 
What will God do with our moral failures? Condemn us? Punish us? Forgive us? One of the greatest indications that the God near-death experiencers describe as the God of the Jewish Christian scriptures is how they depict their life review in his presence. Despite vividly seeing all their deeds, good and evil, and all the relational ripple effects of both, they do not experience a being who desires to condemn. They experience a compassion coming from this being of light. Yet, if you search the gods of the world's religions, how many claim to uphold both justice and righteousness and record our every thought and deed and still hold our forgiveness and compassion because of a desire for loving relationship? A woman in Dr. Long's study experienced all of this. Everything I ever thought, did, said, hated, helped, did not help, should have helped, was shown in front of me. The crowd of hundreds and everyone like in a movie. How mean I had been to people. How I could have helped them. How mean I was intentionally also to animals. Yes, even the animals had feelings. It was horrible. I fell on my face in shame. I saw how my acting or not acting rippled in effect towards other people and their lives. It wasn't until then that I understood how each little decision or choice affects the world. The sense of letting my Savior down was too real. Strangely, even during this horror, I felt a compassion and acceptance of my limitations by Jesus and the crowd of others. The fact that people experience compassion instead of judgment makes some near-death researchers conclude this can't be the God of the Bible. Yet maybe they do not really understand what the Bible teaches. When a woman caught in adultery was brought to Jesus by the religious leaders who wanted to condemn her and stone her to death, Jesus said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. They all dropped their rocks and left. Has no one condemned you? Jesus asked her, No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin, Johnny. God loves us and wants to forgive and take back all humanity, but in order to set us free from all condemnation and forgive us of all of our debts, someone has to make things right. Jesus told Nicodemus, a Pharisee, that's what he came to do. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That would explain why near-death experiencers experience compassion rather than condemnation. But why was Jesus's death necessary? If God wants to forgive us and restore relationship, why doesn't he just forgive? It's a reasonable question. Just forgive. Imagine if you let me borrow your brand new $85,000 sports car and ask me not to drive fast on winding roads. I knew I could handle it, 
So I disobeyed your will and ended up crashing and destroying your car. I'd owe you 85000 to make things right. But what if I said to you, hey, why don't you just forgive me? If you just forgive me the $85,000 I owe to replace your car, you are going to have to pay for righteousness to be done. You'll have to pay for a new car to set things right as they were before I sinned against you. God told his people through Isaiah, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. For justice to be done, someone has to pay to set things right. Either we pay the consequences of rebellion against our Creator, which is separation from the source of all the light, life, and love, or we recognize our need, ask his forgiveness, and he pays it for us through Christ. Old Testament prophets foretold that God would reveal his arm, his own son, to show us what he's like in a human form we could relate to. And this Messiah would pay our debts for us so that all willing people could come home to God. God removed every barrier between you and himself. You don't have to prove you can be good enough. You can't. You can't perfectly follow the eightfold path of Buddhism, the five pillars of Islam, the Ten Commandments, or even your own moral conscience. Ever say, I'll never but you did. We can't be who God intended without relationship with God. So God put the ultimate human price to forgive us and restore relationship with every willing person. God will not force us to seek him, admit we need his forgiveness, or turn back to him. He doesn't want forced slaves. He wants free-willed, loving children who choose to love God. When the cold steel of a terrorist bomb ripped through Sama during a church service in the Middle Eastern country. She only recalls the relational warmth of this God who gives us freedom to choose how we will love him back. Thrown 10 feet into the air, smashed against the opposite wall, I called out to Jesus silently in my agony, Jesus help me. And then in an instant, My spirit left my body and I died. When I opened my eyes, I saw a brilliant white light illuminating Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God. His face was brighter than the sun and he was so glorious. It was as if Jesus could see through me. Reading all my thoughts of my heart, my whole body was shaking. I felt so unworthy to be in his presence. He radiated an amazing love that contained deep acceptance. I felt neither condemnation nor shame. Welcome home, Sama, he said in a voice sweet and gentle, yet also powerful, like the sound of many waters. He opened his arms to me. His beautiful eyes were like blazing fires of consuming love that overwhelmed me. Like a magnet, his love drew me in. Do you want to go back or stay in heaven? Jesus asked. Then he showed me my life 
as if seeing snapshots of a movie. I watched myself growing up, the 19 years I'd lived past in front of my eyes. After seeing the choices I had made, I realized I had been living for my own agenda, and I repented. Oh, Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. All my life, I've been living for myself, my ways, my dreams, my desires, my plans. But it's not about me. It's all about you. He wanted me to go back for my family for their salvation, but also for the salvation of his family, which is multitudes. God is all about family from Genesis to Revelation. As Revelation 5 says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. He is also a gentleman. He never forced me, but gave me the freedom to choose. As I told him my choice that I wanted to go back on earth and be a witness for him, I was motivated by love, not a sense of duty. All right, see you soon, he said. Immediately, a fresh wave of love washed over me. It felt so easy to talk to him, to communicate, like a child speaking to her father. The God of light in India. God wants all people to know him, but he doesn't force us. He tells us if we seek him with all of our hearts, we'll find him. Near-death experiencers concur that this being of light indeed knows every thought of the heart. The Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Oh my goodness, people. That is... I'm telling you, if I, if his spirit would leave me, I don't know what I would do. I truly, truly don't. I don't know what I would do. That would be the most, I think, horrible feeling that could ever be. If he ever leaves you, yikes. Yikes, yikes. As I write this, my friend Jaya is visiting me from Southeast India. Jaya's grandfather was the Hindu guru for the village. Every year during a special festival, they would set out food in their house for the gods and then leave. When they came back, if the gods had eaten the food, it meant a very special blessing on the house. At the age of 12, Jaya decided to hide in the house to see what the gods looked like. To his surprise, rats came and ate the food. When Jaya told his celebrating grandfather that it wasn't gods who ate the food but rats, his grandfather angrily explained that the gods came as rats to protect young Jaya. If Jaya had seen the gods, he would have died. So the gods merciful disguised themselves as rats to protect him. But that didn't appease Jaya's mounting skepticism. He wanted to know if the gods were real. So he broke into his grandfather's locked chest containing the the ancient scriptures written on palm leaves. In the scriptures, he read a And these are the oldest Hindu scriptures. These are from the Hindus. He read about the God of light, the creator of all, who came as Parush, the Lord of all the creation who became man and sacrificed himself to pay so that we could be emancipated from the effects of karma, 
pay back for good and bad deeds. Something inside made Jaya determined to find out about this God of light. Jaya asked the Hindu priest who told young Jaya that if he wanted to see the God of light, he must immerse himself in the Krishna river every night for a hundred nights and chant a special mantra a hundred thousand times. If he did this perfectly, the God of light would appear. The Hindu priest never thought a 14-year-old would do this extreme meditation course. Undaunted, By the burdensome task, Jaya spent the next three months chest deep in filth and human sewage floating down the river. 100,000 mantras later, Jaya crawled out onto the bank of the river, waiting in anticipation for the God of Light to appear. No light appeared except the distant light of the rising moon. Jaya was beside himself. What had he done wrong? Discouraged, he gave up the search for two years. At age 16, a holy man passing through the village came to stay with his family, and Jaya asked him about the God of Light. The guru told Jaya he would take him to a Hindu high priest who lived 800 miles away who knew the God of Light. With the longing still burning within him to know the truth, Jaya decided to secretly run away with this holy man to see the high priest willing to face the consequences when he returned. Halfway through the week-long train ride, Jaya discovered the holy man and his assistant had disappeared, and with them all Jaya's possessions and money. Jaya got kicked off the train for having no ticket, too ashamed to return home, too dismayed to hope, despair set in, and he decided to end his life. Jaya laid his body across the train tracks and one last prayer of desperation he cried, God of light, if you are real, reveal yourself to me now for I am about to take my life. Jaya cannot explain exactly what happened as he lay on the tracks that night except he thought he was seeing the light of an oncoming train but brighter than any light he'd ever seen. A voice from the light said, Jaya, I am the God you are seeking. I am the God of light. My name is Jesus. Jaya came to faith in Jesus, the God of light, before he ever met a Christian or saw a Bible. For the last 25 years, he and his wife have served among the poorest of the poor in India, starting an orphanage to take in street kids, providing job skills for women who are prime targets for sex slavery, founding a hospital to provide care for those who can't afford it, and starting churches to help others in his country know the God of light. Jesus is the God of light, of love, of forgiveness. He wants all people from all the nations to turn back to him. He won't force us. He respects our free will. As we will see in the coming chapters, There's a purpose for his remaining hidden and for us choosing to seek him, love him, follow him, even when we haven't seen him. Mary Neal, the surgeon who died kayaking, asked Jesus why all the people were not allowed the same experience she was having. Jesus repeated the same answer to Mary that he had offered Thomas. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who, who have not seen and yet 
have believed. John 20. Jesus said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead or has a near-death experience. I think this largely explains why God does not tell near-death experiencers his identity. God looks at the heart and he wants people who truly seek him and love him. God has put lots of evidence in the scriptures and in history for all who are truly seeking him. If you want to see examples of the amazing verifiable historical evidence that convinced me, I've put a few in Appendix A, Reasons to Believe. His promise is to all that seek him wholeheartedly will find relationship with him. Because God created you and me for a uniquely special relationship. We don't have to wait for eternity. You enter into that relationship by faith, just like my wife and I entered into marriage by faith, by pledging our lives with a simple, I do. That's all God requires, turning to him in faith, saying, I want what Jesus did to count for me. I want your forgiveness and your leadership. I want to spend eternity with you. You don't have to wait for eternity to grow in that relationship either. God can speak straight to our thoughts right now. We can learn how to listen spiritually. And as we respond in trust, we grow to know God in a more personal way. If you don't know how to hear God's thoughts in your thoughts, read my book, Soul Revolution and do the 60-day experiment, you'll begin to see how real and relational God is right now. You can't even imagine how special you are to the light of the world, but let's try it. And I can really speak to that. God will speak to you. If you give him control of your life, wow, he will do some amazing things for you. He truly will. I wish everybody a great blessed, wonderful week. God bless you all. See you next time.